From exploring some Colorado treasures, like our state capitol and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, to keeping our minds and bodies healthy with an urban farm in Lakewood and a spelling bee for seniors in Arvada, to flying high with some Aurora Public High School students, maybe not quite that high. We'll tell you about some great happenings around our state on this edition of Connected Colorado. Hi, I'm Wendy Brockman. We're here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's Gates Planetarium. We'll learn more about this great museum as we go. But first, for some Aurora Public High School students, the sky's the limit, literally. After a nine-week aviation ground school program, the students headed to Front Range Airport, where they took to the skies for the first time. Ignition off, mass switch off. Good to go. Awesome. This is retired Air Force General John Barry. This is the view from John Barry's airplane. Retired from his position as superintendent of Aurora Public Schools, Mr. Barry is still teaching kids here in Aurora in a very unique classroom. Well, Aurora Public Schools now, we've been doing this for about uh, eight years. So we put uh, anywhere from 30 to 50 kids through each semester. So the uh, course itself is nine weeks long. Uh, for Saturdays, we do two hours from 10 to noon. And the last weekend, they get to fly. Today's the fly day. After attending ground school for the past two months, APS students are prepared for takeoff. Flying in planes just like this one, with seasoned pilots and flight instructors from the Young Eagles organization. So we have uh, pilots who have their own airplanes, they're veterans and have flown for years. And the idea is to be able to now take all those academic uh, hours that they put in and now put it all together in a flight. Traveling at over 130 miles per hour at an elevation of over 10,000 feet, just the thought of it is exciting, maybe even a little scary for many of us. So how did these future pilots feel about taking flight? Oh, it's great. You get some that are kind of timid about it and then some that are really, um, really excited to be up there, but they are all always come down with a smile on their face and happy to get up there. It's clear to see how excited the kids get as soon as they see the airplane. When they come down from their discovery flight with a group like Young Eagles, I mean, they're totally lit up. And for a, cer a certain percentage of these kids, they're always going to remember that flight. This is my first time in a small airplane, so you could definitely feel it a lot more. I mean, it was it was exhilarating the takeoff uh, during flight when I actually got to fly. It was just like, oh my gosh, I'm actually moving this thing myself. Um, but it was really, really fun. So, good experience. This program has helped to launch careers in aviation. This was my like initial beginning of my uh, aviation career. I want to become a aerospace engineer, and. <laughs> learn how to fly, get all my trainings and readings, and ultimately I want to be a uh, test pilot. Volunteering their time, planes, and fuel, participants in the aviation ground school have just one goal in mind for Aurora students. Give them the art of the possible and uh, open their eyes to the 
great uh, opportunities are available in aerospace. The volunteers who work with Young Eagles are incredible because they're bringing a lot of cases their aircraft and they're bringing their own time which instructor fees can be really high at a flight school. Just time in the airplane is a huge investment. So yeah, the cost, I mean it could be a couple hundred dollars um, for each of these flights to take these kids up and give them that experience. So it's very generous but I think it's worth it because the aviation community needs youth like this to get involved at an early age. During ground school, students learn everything from aircraft controls and instruments to flight planning, even airport operations, building a foundation for careers as future pilots. And sometimes flying into the horizon teaches students to broaden their horizons. The sky is the limit, you know, uh, just my experience working with youth at this point, uh, a lot of kids think stuff like this is outside their reach. Um, I like find an airplane is just like some alien thing that no one can do. Um, so I think it's fun to kind of bring it down to earth for them that it's something that you want to accomplish or it might not be flying, but they can see that attainable just by going through this class. What a great experience for those kids. Right here we can see all the flights in the world in near real time thanks to satellite imagery. But did you know we're facing a pilot shortage? To meet hiring demand, we need to train more than 6,000 pilots in the U.S. each year. Instead, only about 400 pilots get their licenses annually. The Aurora Public Schools Aviation Ground School program happens each year, and it's free. For more information, visit youngeagles.org. Now we're in an area called Expedition Health, and it's full of a lot of fun and interactive exhibits. There's even a Tykes Peak where the little ones can learn about healthy foods to take along on their big hikes. Healthy food, of course, starts with agriculture, and the Mount Air Park Community Farm is a model for sustainable urban food production. It's now open in Lakewood, and it's the next big step in creating a network of urban farms to support the Denver metro area. Proud City Farms is an urban agriculture nonprofit based in the city of Denver with the vision of establishing a network of community farms all throughout the city that each serve the needs and wants of their particular communities. Our farms offer a production scale growing of food combined with education and community programs. We're here at Mount Air Park in what will soon be the Mount Air Park Community Farm and it's about an acre and a quarter that we're partnering with the city to transform into a large food producing area. In years past, we've grown over 12,000 pounds of food at our farm sites, and that is able to reach over 1,000 people through all of our food distribution programs. This would have been phase one and that would have been phase two, exactly, and now we're yeah, just talking about second, doing, it, yeah. doing it all. Ultimately, it's a great community asset, but more importantly, a neighborhood asset. Sprout City Farms is forming a partnership with us to give access to healthy foods to people of the neighborhood. But also, I think a, a crucial part of this is teaching kids the importance of healthy eating, as well as where food comes from. I mean, I, I just think it's great to get them started off on the right foot. Just better food in our community that's accessible and that people don't have to go long distance to get really clean food. And then the other thing is the opportunity for the community to participate in the gardening. This truly is a community farm, and for us to make it that, we need the community to tell us what they'd like it to grow into. We're here at Mulholme Elementary School, which is a couple blocks away from the Mount Air Park Community Farm, and we just wrapped up a really great first meeting with the community where we get to talk a little bit about what the farm's going to be and how we want the community to get involved, and it was pretty exciting to have a whole bunch of people turn out and uh, listen to our presentation. 
Well, I think it's a great opportunity for our neighborhood to just really have some cohesiveness and be participant in something that we've actually talked about for many years on the Two Creeks Board. They've now embraced a project that they find exciting and welcoming for their neighborhood. It's something that has been long needed. They'll tell you they've been a food desert here in Two Creeks. They have the opportunity to have this farm here for their neighborhood to take advantage of and to enjoy and be partake in and see other people take joy from it is going to be a huge, huge boon for this community. They've been asking for food production in their neighborhood. They've been asking for better access to healthy food, and I think everyone's really excited about this potential of having the farm and having a whole new way to look at their food system in their neighborhood. And it's really just great to see how excited everybody is to have this coming here. Sprusty Farms started as an urban agriculture nonprofit in 2010, and we broke ground on our first farm in the spring of 2011 at the Denver Green School in Southeast Denver. And they had the vision that they wanted to grow as much food as they could on their campus. So we came in as a partner and ripped up some sod and started growing vegetables for their school cafeteria. Well, it was pretty fun because we got to have all the vegetables like in the cafeteria and they taste really good. And it was fun having the farm stand and we sell food there and that was pretty fun. <laughs> we always wanted to have sustainable source of food for our cafeteria, but that was not something that we were ever gonna be able to pull off with our own limited budget and personnel. So we needed to be teaming with somebody that could actually do it, knew what they were doing, had their own funding and know-how and enthusiasm, but could also still work with four or 500 school kids. We like the carrots, the potatoes, the onions, and everything that you guys bring to us because it tastes better and they look better. I felt like I was in the community more, like working at the farm stand, working in the farm. It feels good eating food that I grew out here. It feels awesome that like we grew that and now and now we're eating it and we get to eat it. So it's like all that hard work sort of just yeah. pays off. Pays off in some good food. It's like you have your own farm in your own backyard. It just helps kids to understand what sustainable farms are like and um, you know how to eat healthier. There's a difference between community farms and community gardens. In a community farm, we're focused on growing as much food as we possibly can. So it's really a production scale model to feed a lot of people. And we educate and build connections with people along the way. In partnership with the communities we work within, we offer a diverse array of programs that are community driven. Our farms are self-sustaining from year to year. They're able to cover their costs. But we seek grant funding and community support to cover the cost of offering our community driven programs. We're really excited to partner with the City of Lakewood and the Two Creeks Neighborhood Association. There's also a couple of schools that are just a couple of blocks away. Why do I do it? Because I like introducing people to their new favorite vegetable. <laughs> and I like seeing the spark light up in people's eyes when they make a connection they couldn't have made if they hadn't visited a farm that day. Most young people don't know where potatoes come from, that they actually come out of the ground. And now they're going to see that this is actually where it comes from. And for young people today in a city, in an urban environment, to understand that is not only educational, but hopefully something that they can take through the rest of their life and understand that you know food has a place that it comes from. And if you take it and nourish it and grow it and then get a chance to eat it, it does taste better. It's just been such a great success. And I feel like every year it's just gotten exponentially better. I think it's an idea whose time has come. And once you get it up and running, you realize that it's something that everyone should be doing. Watching a twig become a bush, a bush produce flowers, a flower have vegetable, and then you eat it. it. You know, to me, it's just almost a miracle to watch that, especially when everybody eats 
so much fast food and processed food that we don't even understand that process of slowing down and being responsible and being thoughtful. It's really a, a space for people to reconnect with nature and just enjoy some time outside. Farm Fresh. That's right. Sounds good, right? Absolutely. We're back at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and joining me is Brian Hostetler. Hello. Hello. How are you? We're going to talk about expedition health. The guys behind us don't look so healthy. No, they've had better days. Absolutely. <laughs> this is our exhibition on the hikers, actually, these two. It's the only museum in the world to have two full-body plastinates like this on permanent display. Wow. It's pretty cool. They really give you an in-depth picture of what's actually going on inside your body, which is really the point of this whole expedition here. So this is all about being interactive. Absolutely. This exhibit is all about stuff that you can do, stuff that you can touch, and stuff that you can feel. So there's activities where you're finding out your own heart rate, you're playing around with uh, aging your face, you're doing a lot of really, really cool things in this exhibit. And the great thing is it's about your human body, not just the human body, but yours. It's a very cool way to go. And it's neat because you can get kind of a personal profile mm -hmm. with, what, a little credit card? Absolutely. Well, it's like a credit card, but it's called a Peak Pass. Okay. And what it does is your information as you go through and do the different exhibits around here is put onto this card and then at the very end you get a printout which will let you take home your information as well as a cool picture of you, uh, some information about your heart rate, sizing up your stride, some really fun things on that. And it's not just about your body, no, no. it's about your mind exactly. and you have a very neat kind of mind meld, mind control game. Yes. Let's take a look. Let's go look. All right. Let's go. This is all about being zen. It is. Okay, the most relaxed person wins? Absolutely, that's the game. How does it work? So basically these little stylish headbands that we have on are measuring our alpha and theta waves that our brains are making, and that moves the ball. So when I hit the start button here, it's gonna move the ball to the middle, and then you relax, and I relax, and the most relaxed will get the ball into the opponent's goal. Okay. So you're trying to get the ball over here, all right? Are you competitive? Yes. Okay. Here we go. You're winning. I am. Uh-oh. Yeah, don't look at the ball. Don't look at the ball. Don't look at the ball. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. It's all about the alpha and theta waves. So right. you, you can't always predict when they're going to happen. This is very cool, though. Is this Mind cool? control. Absolutely. Right. We're going to talk to you again very soon with more about the museum. Sounds great. But first, keeping your mind active helps keep you healthy throughout your life. And a group of seniors in Arvada are doing just that with a spelling bee. It's an annual competition eagerly anticipated by many. And you're going to be number 14. And okay. There are a lot of the past winners that are back. The fifth annual Senior Spelling Bee, sponsored by Apex and the Arvada Press, draws sharp spellers aged 60 and up, some even in their 90s. It's held in March each year at the Community Recreation Center. How it started is I attended an Arvada Harvest Festival um, event in McAvoy Park and they did a kid's spelling bee and it was run by Arvada Press. So I emailed them and said, would you think of doing one for seniors? We've partnered ever since, so this is the fifth one. So we put it together and just started it then. My nine-year-old granddaughter asked me, are you going to study a review? And I said, I've been reviewing for 75 years. Just like spelling bees for kids, there are rules. Let me introduce our pronouncer is Lexi Strummel. She's a retired school teacher and loves spelling. She will pronounce the word. You can ask her to repeat the word. You can ask her to define the word. You can ask her to use it in a sentence or you can ask the origin. Round one begins the fun. Orchestra. Orchestra. O-R-C-H-E-S-T-R-A. Orchestra. The spelling bee draws an average of 24 contestants each year. 
Crux. Ah, uh, sorry, repeat, please. Crux. Sentence, please. The crux of the issue is that Jenny does not want her mom telling her what to do. Crux. C-R-U-X. Crux. It's casual, it's friendly. You know, if I say this is like my fourth year, and so you get more comfortable, I may get better at doing it. It's supposed to be fun. But just come relax. Etc. John Bodner of Noviscon Realty and Terry Rhodes of Super Credit Union acted as judges. It's the fourth year for each of them. They have a, a time limit to answer the, the word. To, they have to state the word, spell the word, and then state it again. My biggest dilemma is that a lot of times they forget to state the word the second time. And as a judge, we're not allowed to flinch or move. Legislature. <laughs> My official job is I get to ding the bell when they're correct. It's always been a really great experience. It's really fun to see all of the seniors, um, how excited they get and how competitive it is. And it's, it's a lot of fun and just a lot of good support for the community. I'm not a very good speller, but I'm a great judge. They're cutthroat. This age group is very competitive. Atrocious. Acupuncture. Culinary. Questionnaire. Aspirin. Periphery. Counterintuitive. Unnecessary. Epitome. By the 13th round, they are down to three competitors. Plagiarize. Would you use that in a sentence, please? Johnny's teacher told him to give credit to the author he was quoting because she did not want him to plagiarize someone else's work. What's the uh, derivation on that? The dictionary doesn't say, but um, plagiarism is Latin, so. Plagiarize. P-L-A-G-I-A-R-I-Z-E, plagiarize. Seth Hawks says he's always enjoyed spelling challenges. Spelling is one of the things you tend to either be good at or not particularly good at. And it's always been something I enjoyed. I was more nervous at first, just getting up there. Once you got used to going up there, it got kind of nervous when it got down to four and you were going up more often. P-A-T-I-O-N, emancipation. The three finalists for the 2014 Senior Spelling Bee were Bev Hagerman for third place, Bob Hawley for second place, and Seth Hawks in first place. And all agree it's really just for fun. But just for the record, the winning word was Euphemism. Euphemism. E-U-P-H-E-M-I-S-M. -E -E Euphemism. Brian, let's have our own spelling bee. Okay. Let's Whale. Go. Wales. W-A-L-E-S. Oh, that's a country. Um, <laughs> W-H-L-E-S. Okay. That's one thing you don't think about when you think of Colorado, but that's the great thing about this museum. You can bring the world right to our state. And it sounds like we have company. Oh, absolutely. They're is, everywhere. Is that like the greatest hits soundtrack it is. of Wales? It is. It's Wales' greatest hits. <laughs> yep. Tell us about this gorgeous exhibit. This exhibit is called Wales Giants of the Deep, and it's actually from the Te Papa Museum in New Zealand. 
They sent us some of their best whale specimens from around the world, and uh, we are getting the chance to display them here in Denver for a little while. How so many different species of whales? Oh, right here we've got at least 25 different species of whales represented in the exhibit. There's over 130 different species in the world, but we've got a number of the really, the, the big heavy hitters, so some really big species here. What's the biggest? The biggest whale around is the blue whale. It's actually the biggest animal that's ever lived on the earth, ever. So take that dinosaurs. Much, much bigger animal than this guy even. This is the, a sperm whale, this one behind us. It's about 50 feet long. The blue whale is about twice that long, wow. about 100, 100 feet long. The symbols we see on the arch, what mm -hmm. are those? Uh, well, the, the symbols on the arch really represent water, and they represent rebirth, and they represent life. And that's all from the Maori culture of New Zealand. It's an indigenous people of New Zealand. They have a really close and interesting relationship with the whales. And you're going to see that throughout the exhibit here at the museum. You're going to see this great uh, relationship on display. It's really right. cool. People are going to want to come see it. How long is it running? Uh, this exhibit runs till February 16th. So plenty of time for the holidays, also plenty of time for those uh, Valentine's Day whales dates. Um, you know how those go. <laughs> So That's it's a great perfect. spot to be. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So where can we get more information about the museum? Absolutely. So check out our website at DMNS, Denver Museum of Nature and Science.org. It's got everything you're going to need regarding classes, on-site programs, off-site programs, things actually happening here in the exhibits. Uh, everything you want to know about the museum is there. Fabulous. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Coming from the ocean, now we're back on land. I'm with Samantha Richards. We are behind the scenes. This is the geology section of the Gems and Minerals Department. What are we seeing here? So we have some gold from Colorado in cool. front of us. So we have approximately 50,000 mineral specimens here in our collection, and one of the best gold collections in the world, including something called the Campion Collection, which is the best collection of crystalline gold anywhere in the world. And it's great because this right here is all Colorado gold. All of the gold here in front of us comes from Colorado, actually. Uh, this is a piece from the Cripple Creek area. This is what we call disseminated gold, meaning the gold is mixed in throughout the rock, and so the gold gets leached out using uh, chemicals like cyanide, and that gold um, is used all over the world for a variety of different things, but it's native here to Colorado, and this gold formed 32 million years ago. Wow. In this one, you can really see kind of the veining of the gold, and this looks like true gold. Where is it this is. from? This is a piece of leaf gold from Breckenridge, um, and we have a spectacular collection of that here at the museum. And this gold from Cripple Creek is just like what's on the top of the dome at the state capitol, as you said. Let's take a look at that Colorado gem, including a behind-the-scenes look. Take 22 years of construction, add a spectacular view of 200 miles of Colorado's front range, then throw in a dome made of gold leaf, and what do you get? It's Colorado's state capital. Here we are, the official marker of the Mile High City, 5,280 feet above sea level. Now, at first, we thought that it was the 15th step. But as technology advanced, we realized that actually wasn't the real step. So then, we thought it was the 18th step. But now, with the advent of GPS, we have officially named it the 13th step. But hey, look at this view, the city and county building. Come on, let's go. So, you can take a full tour of the Capitol, but I decided to wander around on my own. I did run into some awesome tour guides who helped me out, including Gabby, who showed me that one-of-a-kind Colorado Rose Onyx, and Kara, who showed me the historic women's gold tapestry, which pays homage to women who helped settle the state. Here we are, inside the rotunda. Wow. Oh, take a look all the way up. At the very top, 
is the state flower of Colorado. I'll give you a minute. It's the Columbine, but take a look at it. It is two feet across. That shows you how big this building is. In fact, I think it's almost as tall as the United States Capitol. And then in Mr. Brown's attic, I learned all about the Capitol's history, and I met up with another awesome guide, Janine, who showed me how gold leafing on the dome was done. Wow. Well, we just finished up inside Mr. Brown's attic, and you know what's next. I've suited up my sneakers, and I'm ready to climb. Let's head up into the dome. This dome is not to be missed. This is a dome unlike any other dome. Awesome. Wow. This is amazing. Oh, look at this view. Oh, D-Town, you are so beautiful. You really can see everything up here. Such an amazing view. Doug from the Capitol, how are you? Good to see you, Rachel. Good to see you. Okay, so I've got a chance to see everything the public gets to see, but I was thinking maybe you could hook me up with a behind the scenes. Well, you're absolutely right. This is as high as the general public gets to go on any tour, but because you have special friends, we're going to take you up a little higher. All right, let's do it. Let's head up the magical spiral staircase that nobody gets to go up, Rachel, <laughs> when they come to see the dome. And Rachel, you've made it to the attic. We're here, Doug. This is the place between the inner dome that people see on the observation deck, and this wall is actually the outer dome. On the other side of that is the gold leaf. That's the, what we all see. It's a fauna in here. <sighs> you know, Rachel, as cool as it is to be up here where nobody gets to see, there's an awful lot to see around the building. And I want to take you and show you some other highlights of this 100-year-old gym. Let's do it. Ah, I really needed a break after those stairs, Doug. They sure, it's sure cooler in this room than it is up comfy chair. Where are we? Well, this is the old Supreme Court chambers in the Capitol. Of course, a long time ago, the Supreme Court moved its functions out of the Capitol building. But in the day, this was where the Supreme Court uh, heard cases. Ah, I can feel the history. Then Doug took me inside the House of Representatives chambers, which is undergoing a multi-year renovation to uncover the spectacular stencil work that was underneath the brown acoustic tiles. The House chambers are modeled after the British House of Commons, whose color is green. Then we went to the Senate chambers. They're modeled after the House of Lords, and their color is red. Rachel, now we're headed to another part of the not public tour part of the Capitol. This is down into the tunnels underneath the basement. I see more stairs. Good thing I got my sneakers. <laughs> Let's go. A lot of these walls are 12 foot thick granite and this is what supports the entire building up above us. Over 270 feet of it. And there's a very unique feature here in Colorado's Capitol building that doesn't exist in any other state Capitol building in the country. Colorado is the first state to use geothermal energy to help heat and cool uh, the structure. When did that start? It just happened a few years ago. Let me take you and show you some of the functions. It turns out the geothermal heating and cooling system pays for itself in the energy it saves. There's an underground aquifer right below the Capitol. The water is always 65 degrees, so it can be used to keep things cool in summer and warm in winter. This tunnel heads over to the power plant for the Capitol complex, and they actually used to bring coal here to the Capitol for heating in the wintertime. And they would bring that coal on little ore carts, and the tracks still exist here. They've been, of course, paved over, but you can still see them through the concrete floor. 
Well, Doug, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Anytime we get to share this building with the public is a real treat for us. And I mean, this is really a side of detail most people don't get to see. I remember seeing that dome under construction for so long. It's great to see it shining again. If you'd like to see more state treasures, maybe the Denver Mint, you can go to denvergov.org slash denver8tv and look for their new show, D-Town, and visit them on Facebook at I Love D-Town. Thank you to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science for having us. There is so much more to explore here. I think I'll do that. In the meantime, we'll see you next time on Connected Colorado. I'm Wendy Brockman. Thanks for watching. On this edition of Connected Colorado, we'll look at some exciting happenings around our state, from a new sustainable farm in Lakewood, to a spelling bee for seniors in Arvada, to some student pilots in Aurora, and a behind the scenes look at the state capitol and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Join me for Connected Colorado, Thursdays at 8.